you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Jesus' traveling ministry has now ended. He has now uh, arrived back in Jerusalem. And He will not leave Jerusalem until He does so as the risen Christ. So uh, this is all culminated in this one week. About 10 days will pass between now and the end of, of the book of Luke. And all of this had to take place at this place, at this time, and this year, on this day. All of this had to, cul- all of this had to culminate um, here in Jerusalem. Jesus could not have died anywhere other than Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where all of the sacrifices take place. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where the altar is. Jesus could not have died anywhere else. So he had to get to Jerusalem. And he had to get here now because this is the year that he must die. If we were to turn back to Daniel chapter 9, we would find there a prophecy that comes to Daniel from the angel Gabriel And part of that prophecy is that there will be this period of seven weeks and uh, then 62 weeks or seven sets of seven and then 62 sets of seven. We uh, understand that to be sets of years or in other words, 483 years. And after that, that 483 years would begin with the decree of King Artaxerxes that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding their city and their temple And so 483 years after that, the prophecy is that the Messiah would be cut off. The anointed one would be cut off. So if you look at that and we see 483 years, if we measure that in lunar years, as was the Jewish calendar, we come up to the year 33 A.D. So it has to be this year and it has to be on this day because if we were to turn back to Exodus chapter 12, I believe it is, where God is giving instructions for the Passover and we understand that the Passover is not about a meal and it's not about a lamb, it's about Jesus Christ. So all the instructions given about observing the Passover are about Jesus. And part of those instructions are that the 10th day of the month, Every family was to select the lamb that would be their lamb for the Passover sacrifice. It was to be without a blemish and spotless and perfect. They were to select a lamb on the 10th day of the first month, and then that lamb was to come into their home and live with them until the 14th day of the month. It would be their pet. They would get to know it intimately until the 14th day of the month, on which time it would be sacrificed for them. But the 10th day of the first month falls on Monday, this day that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem because what Jerusalem is doing today is selecting their Passover lamb. And so all of this had to happen today. It had to happen this year and it had to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus has got to be on the cross on Friday. Remember when we looked at Zacchaeus, the passage about Zacchaeus, we talked about the divine necessity. It has to happen this way. It has been ordained to happen this way. And everything is coming together here in this passage as Jesus is going to enter into the holy city. So let me give us just a little bit of chronology to help us look through 
uh, for the remainder of the book of Luke. About 10 days will pass between now and the end of the, of the story of Luke. And those 10 days, uh, really the first seven of them are the really important ones. And so just to kind of have in our mind what that chronology looks like, if we were to look at John chapter 12, we would see that John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Six days before the Passover, that would put it on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. So on Saturday, Jesus comes to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he stays with them. And on that occasion is when Mary will anoint Jesus for his death and for his burial. Judas will become incensed about this. This money should have been given to the poor. And the scriptures tell us it's not because he loved the poor so much. It was because he was a thief and would, would dip from the money, uh, the money basket. And so all that happens here on Saturday. The next day is Sunday. And on that day... John tells us in John chapter 12 that a crowd begins to gather at Lazarus's house. And verse 9 of chapter 12 tells us that the crowd was gathering not just to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Lazarus is from that area and everybody knows him. But we would assume that after being raised from the dead, Lazarus has probably been traveling with Jesus. He was probably with Jesus in Jericho. And so he's probably come back now to Bethany, his hometown, and so this crowd gathers because they want to see Lazarus. John also tells us that it is then that the Jews decide that not only do they need to put Jesus to death, they also need to put Lazarus to death, which is really bad news for him because he just died a couple of weeks ago. So now he's got to, uh, according to their plan, they want him to do it all over again. But here's where they come up with the plan to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus as well. That's on Sunday. The following day, Monday, is the day that Jesus will enter into the city of Jerusalem. We call this Palm Sunday, and you're thinking, wait a minute, it's a Monday. Uh, yep, it's really Palm Monday. Jesus most likely entered into the holy city on Monday to the triumphal reception of the crowds that we'll look at and we'll see today. Uh, he gets into the city, it's late in the day, and he looks and sees the temple, um, and his heart is broken. He leaves and goes back to Bethany and spends the night again in Bethany. The next day, Tuesday, he comes back into the city, gets into the city, he curses the fig tree, he cleanses the temple, he tells some more parables, has some angry confrontations with the Pharisees, and um, then he returns back to uh, Bethany again that night. And then the following day, Wednesday, he returns into Jerusalem again. There will be more angry confrontations with the Pharisees, and it is on this day, on Wednesday, that Judas will resolve in his mind that he will betray Jesus over to death. And he makes his arrangement with the religious leaders on Wednesday. The, then Jesus returns again to Bethany to stay the night. The next morning, Thursday, he comes back into the city. And this will be the day he gives instructions to his disciples about the upper room, where to go and prepare for the Passover. They go and they do this. And on Thursday night, Jesus will observe the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. Then there will be that long discourse um, which takes place uh, after the meal. John 17, we looked at that, uh, or we will be looking at that. And that takes place on the night of the Passover. And then after that, um, Jesus and his disciples will leave the Passover place, the upper room, and they'll go into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, or the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus will go into the Garden of Gethsemane for his time of anguished prayer. And that time will spill over into past sunset, and into dark, which will become the, the, the next day for, by, by means of the Jewish calendar. So then, now we're on Friday morning, early Friday morning, 
Jesus will still be praying in the garden. He'll be arrested on Friday morning. He will stand trial in the middle of the night in front of the Sanhedrin on Friday morning. And then first thing, Friday morning, after the sun comes up, Pilate comes and he stands trial before Pilate. Very first thing in the morning, he will be condemned to death. He'll be flogged and beaten and mocked. And he will be crucified, dead, put into the tomb before sundown on Friday. He will spend Friday night in the grave. He'll spend all day Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, resting in the grave. And then Sunday morning, he will rise again. He will, he will appear to Mary. Peter and John will see the empty tomb. And then three days after that, there's this road to Emmaus that we'll see at the end of the story of Luke. So that's sort of a chronological time frame for the rest of the Gospel of Luke. So having that in mind, let's go ahead and read from verse 11 down through verse 28. This is the story of the triumphal entry or Palm Monday as we sometimes think about it. Um, and so as we read through this, there's one thing in particular to be especially watchful for. I want us all to be looking for instances of the sovereignty of Jesus. Not so much explicitly, because this passage is not going to explicitly speak of the sovereignty of Jesus. But be on the lookout for implications, implicit references to the sovereignty of Jesus. We'll uh, endeavor to see those as we read through it, and then as we work through it, we'll note those as we go, and then we'll uh, put all that together for us at the end. So beginning from verse... Um, I'm sorry, I've been telling you the wrong verses all along. It's verse 28 down through verse 44. 11 through 27 was last week. I need to catch up with myself. So from verse 28, And when they had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Heavenly Father, we pray earnestly for um, your help and discernment and understanding and application of this passage that we face today. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reign supreme. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would glorify Jesus Christ and adore Him, and admire Him, and love Him, and worship Him more fully. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I often 
think to myself of just how different it is for us as modern people to read Scripture compared to how it must have been for ancient people or not even ancient people, from people from even 1700, 1800, 19th century, how different it must be for us to read Scripture than it was for them. And what I mean by that is that we have been permanently poisoned by media. I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I'm reading a narrative about anything, a story about anything, the way I visualize it is like a movie. You do that? When you try to visualize something, in your mind you're pretending that you watch a movie. That's all because you've been permanently poisoned by our media intake. And we're just we're now wired to think of things like watching a movie. So as I'm reading this passage, in my mind, I'm thinking that I'm watching this sort of unfold like, like a movie. And some of the details that Luke is going to give us would really play well into some screenplay. So let's just begin from verse 28. And when he had said these things, these things being the parable of the minas, that parable that was um, startling in its pronouncement of judgment upon those who have not received a new heart from Jesus and how uh, the parable so neatly divides up all of humanity into three groups. The faithful servant with a new heart who loves the nobleman, the false servant who pretends to know and love the nobleman and those who outright deny the nobleman altogether. This parable divides them up so neatly and um, pronounces wrath and judgment upon the two of those groups. Uh, so this parable would have been startling and surprising to hear. In addition to that, the uh, pronouncement of eternity here at the end, the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for eternity for those who have received the new heart, uh, the loss upon loss, the wrath upon wrath for eternity for those who have not, bringing them before the nobleman and slaughtering them. This would have left them, I think, a little bit, open-mouthed, a little bit startled and surprised by what they just heard Jesus say. So Luke says, when they had said, when he had said these things, he went on ahead. So in my mind, I picture it like they're all kind of still standing there with their mouth open, maybe staring at each other, and they look and there, Jesus says, he's already gone on and left them. So he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem means that Jericho, of course, as you probably have heard, was, was about 3,300 feet in elevation below Jerusalem. So it was a hike upwards from Jeruz from Jericho into Jerusalem. So he goes on up ahead, up, going to Jerusalem. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples ahead, not into Jerusalem, but he sends them ahead into the villages of Bethany or Bethphage or both. So this town Bethphage is the only... The only place that we hear of this in Scripture, um, and it must have been a small, tiny little village, so small that we don't even know where it was. But we do know where Bethany was. Bethany was two miles outside of Jerusalem on the other side of Mount of Olives or Mount of Olivet. Uh, Jerusalem sits um, high in elevation, surrounded by mountains. To the east of Jerusalem are three mountains. The one in the center is uh, the Mount of Olives. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives, to the east of Jerusalem, over the crest of the Mount of Olives, was the village of Bethany. Only two miles away, but you couldn't see Jerusalem from, the, from Bethany or vice versa. So it was a little bit of a hike over and down into Bethany. Jesus is coming up from Jericho, and he's going to pass through Bethany and Bethphage on the way over the Mount of Olives 
into the city of Jerusalem, entering in from the east gate. And so as he reaches these two places, it's interesting to kind of think about the names of these. Bethphage uh, literally means house. You, you probably have seen Beth in Hebrew is house. House of figs. And Bethany literally is house of dates. And, um, of course, the mountain is called the Mount of Olives. So this was probably a really agricultural type of area. Farming, raising dates, figs, crops would have been very popular in this area. Uh, but Bethany, as we know, was the, was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's interesting when we think about Bethany. Bethany is still there today, although it is no longer called Bethany. Um, it now has a uh, an Arabic name. Let me try to remember it. El Alazara, which in Arabic means Lazarus. So Bethany still exists there as a small town, only now it's called by uh, the most well-known person to have, have lived there, the one who um, died and was risen back to life, Lazarus. So he comes to this place, Bethany, Bethphage, um, at the mount that is called Olivet, and he sends ahead these two disciples, and he gives them these instructions. And the instructions are, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. How in the world does he know that? How in the world does he know, not only that they're going to find a colt, they're going to find it right away. He says, upon entering, Matthew says immediately, it's going to be tied in a certain place. And he's also going to know that this particular colt is one that no one has ever sat on. And as you said, I mean, obviously, only a divine God could know this. Um, so we see already the implications of Jesus's divinity. Only God could know this. Enter into the city. You'll find this colt tied right there. You'll see it right away. And by the way, nobody's ever sat on it. Um, Matthew tells us that the colt will be tied up with its mother. And its mother is not a horse, so this is not a horse colt. So its mother is a donkey, so this is a donkey colt. So it's going to be tied up in this way. Now, a couple of things for us to notice here. First of all, of course, we notice the sovereignty of Jesus right away. That he knows this in intimate detail about this. But also, let's, let's think for just a moment about the fact that they're going to retrieve this donkey colt on which no one has ever ridden. And we're already kind of thinking of some connections. Um, Jesus will, will be killed and laid in a tomb in which no one has ever been laid. Um, Jesus uh, was born from a womb that um, had not born anyone before him. We see some connections through Jesus' life in that way, but this cult, um, I think, bears even more connections for us. If we were to look back, at this uh, should be in your handout, but if we were to look back at Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, uh, we would see this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of entering into the holy city, riding on the colt of a donkey, a donkey colt. So what does all this mean? Does it mean that Jesus, who, uh, by the way, we have never been told that he rode on anything except a boat, except for before he was born, and Mary rides on the donkey. Other than that, Jesus has walked everywhere he's gone. Even on water, he's walked where everywhere he's gone. 
We've never been told that he has ridden anything. So why is it that Jesus now wants to ride a colt into the holy city? Is this some grand display of kingly majesty? And if it is, it seems pretty lame. Because if he wants to present this majestic picture of an entering king, then why not pick a white horse or something like that, or a chariot or something of that nature. But it, he rides in on the colt, on a donkey colt. Actually, this isn't a, um, this is a display, but this isn't a display of majesty. This is a display of humility. In Jesus' day, no self-respecting Jewish man would have been caught dead riding a donkey. It was just not done. Donkeys were beasts of what? Burdens. And a Jewish man was not a burden. And so a Jewish man would not ride a donkey. They would ride uh, perhaps um, other animals, but they would not ride a donkey. Uh, when we see Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem and he puts Mary on the donkey, he's not being chivalrous. He's just being a Jewish man because Jewish men did not do that. Um, it was considered... Um, derogatory towards their character for a Jewish man to ride on a donkey. So Jesus not only intentionally will ride this donkey, but he will ride a colt of a donkey. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, I want to enter into the city in the most humiliating, humble way possible, even more humble than just walking into the city. I want to enter into the city in the most humble way possible. So we see the humility of Jesus as he uh, chooses this way to enter into the city. But we also see something else of his sovereignty by way of his divine control over creation. Jesus is going to enter into the city sitting on a colt upon which no one's ever sat. And if you know anything about riding animals, riding one that has never been ridden before, the last place you want to try to do that is in a parade when people are waving palm branches and cloaks in front of their face and crowds are, are packing around and it's loud and noisy and oh, by the way, the person on my back, I've never seen him before. Jesus, however, uh, you know, it's, it's like he's the ultimate uh, donkey whisperer. He rides this donkey colt on which no one has ever sat displaying for us in this in this way that we could almost miss this perfect sovereignty over his creation. Even the cult willingly obeys him. So we see once again his sovereignty and his control over creation. He rides on this cult on which no one has ever sat. He says, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say this. The Lord has need of it. Um, so why are you taking my animal? Uh, Jesus needs it. Uh, the response to that would have been, absolutely, take it. Jesus was never more popular. He's in the village, probably of Bethany, maybe Bethphage. He's in that area. Everybody has heard of him. The crowd that is following him is enormous. Um, there would have been no problem once that they heard Jesus asks for this. Oh, yes, please take it to him right away. So the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it exactly as he had told them. Jesus foreknew this. He knew exactly in detail how they would found, find it, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Just like Jesus said. And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And then throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So they put their cloaks on there so that he doesn't 
um, have to sit on the animal's back itself. But then as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Matthew also tells us that they laid palm branches on the road as well. But they spread their cloaks on the road. That was just a symbolic way of saying, I place myself under your feet. Um, I'm not going to literally lie underneath your donkey, but my cloak symbolically is saying that I'm placing myself underneath your feet, which is the position that the Bible always shows us in relation to God. We are at his feet. We're not uh, standing um, before him as equals. We are at his feet. So they lay their cloaks on the donkey's feet so that the donkey can travel, can step on the cloaks. Um, and as he was drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So now they've crested the mount, and now they're coming down the west side of the Mount of Olives, and they can now see what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And seeing, even just seeing the holy city, seems to move all of them. Um, and in fact, it moves them to praise. It's probably hard for us to understand as Gentiles, it's probably hard for us to understand particularly how ancient Jews thought of the city of Jerusalem. It was, it was the holy city. It was the city where their temple was. It was the city where their altar was. It was the center of Jewish identity. So it's hard for us to really relate to what this city would have meant to ancient Jews, which kind of clues us in as to why it's so um, contested even today. So they come over the crest. Now they see Jerusalem. The whole multitude of his disciples, upon seeing the city, begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for what? For all of the mighty works which they have seen. So again, we see a reminder. Again, it's this sort of this implicit reminder of the sovereignty of Jesus. They praise God for what? Because they have seen with their own eyes that guy over there was blind. He was sitting at the gates in Jericho. Jesus healed him. Over there is Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. No doubt there are countless other people in this crowd that Jesus has healed of numerous infirmities. They have seen him cast out demons. They have seen him cleanse lepers. Some have seen him calm storms. Many have seen him multiply bread and fish. They have also seen him radically change lives because Zacchaeus is with him. Zacchaeus was the evil, wicked, selfish tax collector who now has a new heart that is so radically different that he's giving away everything he has because God has changed his heart. And the crowd has seen all these things. They see the city of Jerusalem and all this moves them to praise God for the sovereign acts of power that they have seen at the hand of Jesus. The, the sovereignty of Jesus is all over this passage. So they begin to rejoice and praise God for the mighty works that they have seen, saying, blessed is the king. Now, who's the king? Well, we know it's Jesus, but it's really Herod Archelaus or Caesar, if you want to look at it. It's, it's not this guy, but they're saying blessed is the... They're calling him the king. Now, where did that come from? He's never claimed to be king. The sovereignty of Jesus, so much so that the crowd is now moved to recognize he is the king. Now, there's still a lot of misunderstanding intertwined into that that we're going to 
start to pull apart as we look through this, but they are calling him the king, the sovereign one. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king. And peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That reminds us of his arrival on the scene back in Luke 2. The angels declared something similar from the heavens. And then verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now why didn't the Pharisees rebuke them themselves? It's almost like that even they recognize this guy's in charge. This guy, the, his disciples should be rebuked, but we don't feel in the place to rebuke them ourselves, so we're going to go and say to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Jesus' sovereignty is just dripping from this passage. Even the Pharisees won't confront Jesus' disciples, but instead they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, because they believe, of course, that the disciples are being blasphemous in the things that they are saying. Then uh, he responds, verse 40, he answered, I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We saw previously, of course, um, all throughout chapter 18 through chapter 19, we're seeing that God will have his son worshipped. We saw this recently um, as we looked at Matthew chapter 2 for Christmas as the the Magi come. God will have his son worshipped. Jesus says, I will be worshipped. Even so, if these are quiet, I will make rocks worship me. Jesus can make rocks worship him. I'm not sure how you display your sovereignty over creation any more definitively than that. If these people stop worshiping me, then the very rocks will worship me. The rocks, the stones themselves, will cry out in worship to me. The sovereignty of the Son of God. So then verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now the word that Luke uses there is well translated. Um, it, it doesn't mean cry. And it doesn't mean tear up, and it doesn't mean uh, sort of get a lump in your throat. It means to bawl, to sob, to uh, this gut-wrenching wailing. Jesus isn't just sort of kind of tearing up and sort of getting croaking in his voice. Jesus is sobbing in great anguish over the city that he now sees before him. Jesus cries in Scripture three times. Twice over Jerusalem and once over Lazarus. And in this instance, he is just sobbing. Um, what we might, should we be seeing it, we might call it uncontrollable sobbing over the city of Jerusalem. So uh, the disciples are joyful and um, giddy in their praise, Jesus is not exactly giddy. Jesus is not exactly um, overflowing with joy. He is overflowing with immense sorrow over Jerusalem. We'll come back to that. Verse 42. So he says, in the midst of his tears, he says, Would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace. They just proclaimed peace. His disciples proclaim peace, but Jesus says, 
if you only knew what really brings peace. He is here to bring peace. Just like every time I've ever sat down in a, a counseling situation, it's always the same. There's always a conflict, and the person wants that conflict to go away and peace to come. But as we open the Scriptures, we see where the conflict is really between you and God. That's the real conflict. Yes, interpersonal conflicts, we can help those and make those better, but peace with God is the real goal here. When peace with God is achieved, that's the true peace. That even these other conflicts completely change upon that. See, they want the peace to, to come and to eliminate the conflict. They, of course, want Jesus to enter into the city and eliminate their conflict. They want Him to make Archelaus go away. And they want Him to make the Roman soldiers go away. And they want Him to restore their lands to them. That's what they want or they foresee as peace. But Jesus says, if you only knew, peace is here. But it's not the peace that you're crying out for. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. All of God's communication to us comes with an expiration date. Anytime God moves in our heart uh, to move us towards obedience or move us towards repentance or move us towards anything, that always will come to an end. If we ignore it, if we re refuse it, it will go away. His communication to us, if it's not acted upon, it will go away. It will die. And Jesus is saying here, there was a time when you could have understood what makes for peace, but you have refused it. And now that time is past, and it is now what? It is now hidden from you. Oh, that you would have known what makes for peace, but you didn't. You refused it. And now that the time of knowing for you has now passed, and these things are now hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, in 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Titus uh, will besiege the city of Jerusalem. He will come on April 9th. Uh, he will come during Passover when Jerusalem is the most crowded. When the maximum number of people are in Jerusalem, the Roman army will come uh, and surround it and they'll actually build wooden barricades and they will besiege the city beginning in April throughout the whole summer. They will deny the city of food and water and then um, all of that will culminate in September of 70 AD when the Roman army will finally enter into Jerusalem and find starving, half-dead people and they will slaughter the city and they will raise it to the ground um, all of that will happen. This is what Jesus is speaking of here in less than 40 years from the time that Jesus speaks this. And this will come to them, Jesus says, because you did not recognize your visitation, the time of your visitation. Or in other words, you did not recognize the Messiah who came to you to visit you. So that's sort of an overview of the passage. Now let's sort of rewind a little bit and I want to go back to what I think is the dominant idea of the passage, the, 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 
the aspect of the passage that should hit us when we think about it between the eyes. Let's go back to verse 41, and let's look at Jesus' reaction. He enters into the city. He has come from heaven. He has been born a baby. He has uh, taken on humanity. He has come all this way, and they have misunderstood. They have been blind to him, and they do not understand. And his reaction to their failure to understand is what? He weeps. He sees the city and he is moved to weeping over it. It is not just a little bit ironic that this is one of those passages that is most often used by those who would deny the divinity of Jesus. And the reason is, is because they go to this verse 42. I've read many um, writings that will use this and similar instances um, to deny Jesus' divinity because they go to the idea of weeping. Like and, can't do right, because weeping for us necessarily involves a component of helplessness. We can weep for joy, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about weeping for sorrow. For us, weeping in sorrow necessarily implies an element of helplessness. You see suffering or you see a situation, a traumatic situation, uh, something deeply undesirable, and you wish it wasn't so, but you can't change it, and you weep over it. And so many look to this and they say, see, Jesus is weeping. That, that, that means, it can't mean anything other than he just is so distraught that he did his best and they just wouldn't listen. And he tried to teach them a better way and he tried to show them a better understanding. And some have listened and some have believed. But on the whole, most of them, they just didn't listen. And so for many, this, this equals a person who was a great man, but just a man. And I say that it's ironic because as we walk through the passage, how often did we see that the passage was so clearly implying to us that this is not a man. This is God who knows events before they happen. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows people's hearts. Um, he has foretold not only this, but he has foretold of his betrayal that will come after this. Um, he is worshipped, and he doesn't refuse that worship. This is the first time, by the way, that Jesus doesn't refuse worship. Um, he is praised for all of the countless miracles that he has performed. He is accompanied by people, or at least a person he has raised from the dead. All of this surrounds this instance of weeping. And so that's why I say it's ironic that we would look to that and say, see, he is just a man. But let's think through this. Let's think. Um, Jesus, of course, is not weeping because, uh, doggone it, he did his best and it just is not working out. And he really thought it was going to work out better than this and he's just sad because he knows a better way for the Jewish people but but darn it they just won't follow him 
Jesus is not weeping because his plan is unraveling. Listen to this. Jesus is weeping because his plan is being fulfilled. He is weeping at the fulfillment of his plan. Jesus is not weeping because he's helpless. Jesus is sovereign in his sorrow and sorrowful in his sovereignty. He is sovereign in his sorrow and sorrowful in his sovereignty. You see, one thing about us as people, we bear the image of God, which means, among other things, that we share qualities with God. There are qualities that humanity shares with God that are similar to his divine attributes. However, all of the divine qualities that we share are perverted in us. They are distorted in us. We, uh, we display whatever goodness that we display in a fallen way, in a deficient way. One of the things that that means is for fallen people created in the image of God, oftentimes our deficient display of good qualities can appear to be contrary to other good qualities. Let me say that again. Our deficient, our lacking display of good qualities can often appear to be contrary to other good qualities. If that's confusing, let me give a couple of examples and this will sort of work its way out for you. Um, who cannot relate to the idea of a judge sitting in judgment on a bench and in front of him is a 19-year-old young man who is uh, accused and has just been convicted beyond a shadow of a doubt of violently, with premeditation, taking the life of an innocent person. And here's this judge that's in judgment of this person now preparing to pass sentence on this person. But this judge knows that this 19-year-old man never met his father, his mother was a drug addict, had a different boyfriend every other month who beat him and abused him in every other conceivable way. He grew up on the streets with no one to love him, no one to care for him, and the streets taught him to be hard. And now as a 19-year-old, he has fulfilled what the streets taught him to be. And he has taken the life of another man. And here's this judge who knows beyond a doubt that this person committed this heinous crime and he must pass sentence. But he also knows this person was set up to fail. Who cannot recognize the conflict, the apparent conflict, between justice and mercy? Justice and love. Something that we as humans, in our fallen condition, although we share God's attributes, we cannot help but to see that as at least partially contrary. Or, those of us who are uh, parents, we see this daily in our homes. Okay, uh, In our home, it's pretty pretty regular sort of thing that there's conflicts. And um, in the resolution of those conflicts, well, uh, this person said that, he did that, he looked at me in that way. Blah, blah, and, and then to dispense Perfect discipline and perfect love is impossible. You can't sort through. It's impossible. You just got to do something and hope that it was better than something else. 
So it's easy to see how as fallen creatures, to us often two good qualities can seem to be in conflict with each other. Jesus, however, is not fallen. Jesus is divine. And for the divine, good qualities are never in conflict. So for us, the ideas of power and tender-hearted mercy can sometimes seem to be in conflict. Sometimes we can see uh, that sovereignty and power is at odds with tender-hearted mercy and forgiveness and um, broken-heartedness, and as Jesus does here, weeping. We can see both of those qualities as good, and we can see both of those qualities as admirable, but sometimes it's hard for us to see both of those qualities together that are not in conflict with each other. What Jesus shows us in this passage as is that as God, he is perfectly brokenhearted over the wrath that is to come and perfectly sovereign over the wrath that he will mete out. Now, as we, as we begin to see this, what this does for us is this greatly increases, it should increase how we admire Jesus and how we love Jesus. We should, we should be elevated in our admiration, in our adoration, in our love for Jesus as we see how perfectly he can bring these two things together. You see, the world teaches us, even without scripture, the world teaches us that power is to be admired, right? Um, we can see uh, just in, in an image like this, okay? We can look at that image and we can see power. We can see men who are armed to the teeth and no doubt trained to take life and to do it efficiently and quickly, and they will take you down. And we can look at that and we can admire the power that we see there. We can also look at an image like this and we can admire the mercy, the broken heartedness, the mercy that's shown from a position of strength or weakness, from weakness. We can see mercy as it's shown from another position of weakness and we can admire that. But isn't there a sense in which we can admire this even more deeply? Because this is mercy from a position of power. This is mercy that's shown not from the helpless, but from the one who could easily take life. So the world teaches us that power can be admired, mercy can be admired, but when we see the two together, we can admire that even more. So in the world, we can, we can see instances of mercy that comes from the powerful. And that can be something that we look at and we can admire. But nowhere, nowhere in this creation is there an example of sovereignty combined together with tender-hearted 
broken-hearted mercy. Nowhere. Not in any other religion. Other religions can, sh can show us pictures of perfect sovereignty, like Islam, but that is not combined together with a picture of, of broken-hearted mercy. Allah can be merciful when He wants to, but He's not a merciful God. Or we can see pictures of mercy. But nowhere does the world show us a picture of perfect, complete sovereignty and perfect, complete, broken-hearted, merciful tenderness combined together into one divine being. There is no human example of that. There is no example even in all of the fiction writing of people. Nobody's ever created a fictional character like that. There is only one who is perfectly, completely sovereign over every situation and at the same time genuinely brokenhearted over it. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't crying because he just wishes this situation was different and he's helpless to change it. He's crying because he is showing a depth of true godly emotion that we're not capable of, at least not yet. But he's doing it from a position of perfect power. He's weeping because his own plan is being supernaturally and miraculously brought together. He doesn't lack an inner peace. He's not in inner turmoil as though, I'm not sure how this is going to work out and I hope it works out well. But he displays something that we as followers of Christ should see in him and admire deeply and love deeply this perfect demonstration of sovereignty and broken-hearted tenderness and mercy. Um, John Piper preaches about this passage and in his application of this, I'm just going to take this from him. Um, he envisions a conversation that we as believers will one day have with Jesus. And the conversation that Piper imagines goes like this, where Jesus asks us, how did you feel about the suffering and uh, loss in the world? How did you feel about the suffering in the world? And then Piper goes on to imagine that, that many may try to answer this way. Jesus, I saw through that. I saw through it. I saw how so much of the suffering and so much of uh, the hurt in the world was brought about by people's own stupid decisions. And I saw how so much of, of the suffering in this world was brought about by people's duplicity and people oftentimes uh, tried to get one over. So I, I was never taken in by any of that. They didn't get anything over on me. I saw through all of that. And Piper goes on to say, I think that Jesus' answer would be, I never asked you what you saw through. I asked you what you felt about the suffering that you saw. Because I showed you in my word how I felt and how I feel about the suffering that I saw. How did you feel about the suffering that you saw? Some of us, for some of us, it may have been a long time since we wept over the suffering 
of others. In particular, if we were to say, well, let's, let's exclude children and spouses and family members. For some of us, it, we may have never wept over the suffering of someone we didn't know. If so, maybe it's been a long time. Jesus is saying to us in this passage, this is how the sovereign creator of the universe reacts to the suffering of his enemies, of those who will, in a few days' time, violently and viciously put him to death. This is how the Son of Man reacts to their suffering. It moves him to deep, compassionate, tender-hearted, broken-hearted mercy towards them. We live in a hard world. And for a lot of us, the world that we live in shows us a lot of suffering. We see it like no generation of people has ever seen it before. And one of the reactions that can come from that is we can become hard to it. We can just become hard people. Not hard to God, just hard to suffering around us. We see so many people take, taking advantage of others. We see people trying to take advantage of our kindness. And we sort of develop these walls against that and this resistance against that because we don't want to be taken in. And Jesus never called us to that. I don't think he's going to care that we were never taken in. I think he's going to care that we were broken over seeing sorrow and suffering in others. I remember, um, you may remember this, I remember one, ex one instance um, years ago when I was pastoring a, a different church. It was a Wednesday night. And um, I had just, uh, it was a teaching uh, thing started, it just started, I, I think I just started, to, or just was about to begin, and some strangers walked in the door, um, and they said, we're out of gas, and we need, can, can you give us some money to get home? And it's kind of one of those, you know, uh, people were sitting waiting for me to begin and everything, and so I, I remember some of the other leaders of the church were thinking, well, you know, we, we think that they're just, this is just a scam, and we, we don't think we should get, and, and I remember thinking, um, I don't think that's that's the knee-jerk reaction of love. Well, fast forward now to last, to just this week, and I just get a phone call out of the blue, um, because the church phone number for the Garden Fellowship is my cell phone. So I just get a call phone from, from out of the blue from someone who says, "Guess what? We're out of gas. Can your church help?" And do you know my reaction? Yeah, I don't think we can help at this time. Oh, you can? Wait, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I don't, I don't think we can help at this oh, time. Oh, okay. Completely blind and completely hard, not wanting to be taken in by some trickster, not wanting to be bothered with trying to investigate to see if this is a genuine need or not, just more concerned with, okay, I'm, I'm, yeah, prob maybe this is real, but probably not. I don't think that our problem is that we're not discerning enough. I think our problem is that we're not merciful enough. I think that our problem is that we're not moved enough by the suffering around us. And we can we can go on and on about how 
we see so much more of it and there's so much suffering and we get overwhelmed and there's well you know what god still made us and he still has given us a heart and he still shows us in his word that his reaction to sorrow and suffering is to be moved by it Um, and so i think that that is our takeaway from this passage number one we leave this passage saying jesus I admire you more deeply. I admire you more fully because you show me in your word the perfect combination of complete sovereign power and control over the situation and tender, brokenhearted care and concern and compassion for those who are sorrowful and suffering. So I admire you. I uh, will um, leave this room loving you more than I did when I came in. So that's one takeaway. The other takeaway is God, give me a tender heart. Soften my heart. Cause me to be less concerned about being taken in by false suffering and cause me to be more like you because when we see the sorrow and suffering of others and we're moved by it, then it's when we're being like Jesus. So our prayer, I suggest to us, should be, God, give me a more tender heart, a heart that... um, We'll see the sorrow and suffering of others and be moved by it like you were. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.